0: Let's sing together um, an old, an old hymn of the church. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. Praise to the, the Lord, the Lord, Almighty, the, the King, King of Creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. O ye who hear, now to the temple draw near, join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously raised. Shelters thee under his wings, yes, so gently sustain her. Hast thou not seen how their desires have been granted in what he ordained her? Praise to the Lord, oh, let all. Life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the Amen sound from his people again, gladly forever adore him. Let the Amen. Forever
1: adore Him. Good morning and welcome here. Ron is going to make an announcement.
2: Good morning. Um, just a reminder, we're still have certain, or we have several protocols for COVID to follow here yet. So just a reminder, when you're sitting down, please have about three, well, have three seats Empty seats beside you and the next person. Um, we've tried to arrange the chairs so that that hopefully accommodates some of that. Um, next thing is, um, okay, what was I going to say? Okay, yes, we have purchased uh, ten chairs with arms on them, and they're kind of interspersed amongst the uh, the sanctuary here. I I don't want to be the judge of who can sit in those chairs and who can't. No I don't. (laughs) But they are there for, the the, the chairs with arms are there for people that um, can use the assistance for getting up and sitting down as well. So that's why there are those chairs uh, here throughout. So if you need that, please make yourself, or please sit down in one of those chairs. If you don't require it, if possible, try to find another place to sit, but don't do that now, next time. Thank you.
1: All right, Um, I would like you to just listen as I read to David's praise to God and let that be our prayer of assurance today. This will be from Psalms 22, 22 to 28, and I'll be reading from the New International Readers Version. I will announce your name to my people. I will praise you among those who are gathered to worship you. You who have respect for the Lord, praise him all you people of Jacob honor him all you people of Israel worship him he has not forgotten the one who is hurting he has not turned away from his suffering he has not turned his face away from him. he has listened to his cry for help because what of because of what you have done I will praise you in the whole community of those who worship you in front of those who respect you I will keep my promises. Those who are poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May their hearts be filled with new hope. People from one end of the earth to the other will remember and turn to the Lord. The people of all the nations will bow down in front of him. The Lord is king. He rules over the nations. Amen.
0: Came down from, from heaven's, heaven's throne, the, the earth, earth you fall. Sacrifice Jesus son of God You are Jesus son of God You took our sins you bore our shame you rose to of our praise, let there be no higher name, Jesus, Son of God, you lay down your perfect life, you are the sacrifice, Jesus, Son of God, you are Jesus, Son of God, be lifted high overcome. Your name is louder than any other song. There is no power that can come against your love. The cross was enough. The cross was enough. The cross was enough. The cross was enough. 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 On the altar of our prayer. Let there be no higher name Jesus, Son of God You lay down your perfect life You are the sacrifice Jesus, Son of God You are Jesus, Son of God When
1: these ch- Songs were chosen. Um, this is a part of actually the liturgy um, for, this, for this day, but also um, just in keeping with the persecuted church, the songs, um, their songs, we can sing along with them.
0: On the clouds, kings and kingdoms will have and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the lion, the lion roaring with power and fighting our battles and every knee will bow before him our God is the Lamb the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world his blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and knee will bow before him. So open up the gates, make way before, before the King of kings, the God who came to save. Is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion. i oh.
1: Kings 25, and I'll be starting at verse 8. There's a couple of big words in here that um, I have read, but I have not pronounced out loud um, until this morning when I was asking Pastor Russell what I how to pronounce it. And so um, you can say them inside your head and I'll say them outside and we'll see where we end up. All right, let's read. Nebuchadnezzar was an official of the king of Babylon. In fact, he was commander of the royal guard. He came to Jerusalem. It was in the 19th year that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. It was on the seventh day of the fifth month. Nebuchadnezzar set the Lord's temple on fire. He also set fire to the royal palace and all the houses in Jerusalem. He burned down every important building. The whole Babylonian army broke down the walls around Jerusalem. That's what the commander had told them to do. Some people still remained in the city, but Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them away as prisoners. He also took the rest of the people of the land. That included those who had joined the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land. He told them to work in the vineyards and fields. The Babylonian army destroyed the Lord's temple. They broke the bronze pillar into pieces. They broke up the bronze stands that could be moved around, and they broke up the huge bronze bowl. Then they carried the bronze away to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the wick cutters, and the dishes. They took away all the bronze objects used for any purpose in the temple. The commander of the royal guard took away the shallow cups for burning incense. He took away the sprinkling bowls. He took away everything made out of pure gold or silver. The bronze was more than anyone could weigh. It included the bronze from the two pillars, the huge bowl and the stands. Solomon had made all those things for the Lord's temple. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze top of one pillar was four and a half feet high. It was directed with a set of bronze chains and pomegranates all around it. The other pillar was just like it. It also had a set of chains. The commander of the guard took some prisoners. They included Saraya the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the priest who was next in rank. They also included the three men who guarded the temple doors. Some people were still left in the city. The commander took as prisoner the officer who was in charge of the fighting men. He took the five men who gave advice to the king. He also took the secretary. He was the chief officer in charge of getting the people of the land to serve in the army. He took 60 of those people serving in the army who were still in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took all of them away. He brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. There the king had them put to death. Ribla was in the land of Hamath.
3: Those names are translated from one language into another language, into another language, into another language. I guarantee you nobody knows how to pronounce them right anyway. I think you did a great job. All right. Let's bow in prayer to dismiss the little ones to Children's Church. Our dear God, we... Thank you so very much for the little ones of our church. God, we pray that as they are in children's church, they learn new truths about you, new things that will guide them as they grow up and in their lives to come. We pray also for the teachers. Please give them the words to say as well as the perseverance to see it through. And we want to pray also a blessing for our service today. God, please make yourself known. In your name we pray all of these things. Amen. All right. Before we go into our announcements today, this coming week is Remembrance Day. Uh, Sheldon volunteered to share a memory of his grandfather, who was a CEO.
4: I'd like to just share a few things about Linda's dad. It's not my grandfather, but Linda's dad, who was a CEO in the Second World War, and. I am very thankful for Remembrance Day. I'm thankful for the people that did go and stand up and fight for our freedom. Um, And I am very thankful for Linda's dad who also went as a CEO to help. He supported the war in in his uh, giving of his time and his labor and uh, so that uh, our freedom could be fought overseas and I'm thankful for that. And even though some, even though I don't believe in killing is right, but I do believe that war is part of who we are as, as people here on earth. And so I'm very thankful for the people that I know that were involved and helped fight our freedom.
3: If you have your uh, bulletins on you today, you'll see that there are a number of items uh, for announcements, uh, some that have changes on them as well. Uh, first... Uh, Women's Bible Study at 1.20 this coming Monday. Wednesday, Youth. Well, actually, that is a change. It'll be at Dawson and Bethany's at 7.30. So Dawson and Bethany's, make sure to mark that down. Uh, Prayer meeting, 7 p.m. at the church. This coming Friday, if you had gotten your pre-orders in, then you pick up your uh, YFC banquet meals at the Austin Hall. You'll have a scheduled time to do that. Uh, On November 23rd, there is a congregational meeting coming up. The major thing that will be on the docket will be the fall elections. There is a list of all of the positions that are needing people to fill them on the back table. If you have not gotten the chance yet, I'd encourage you to pick that up, as well as make any nominations that uh, you feel um, led to move. The MCC is still looking for volunteers. You can talk to Dorothy about that. Uh, The offering box is on the back table if you are moved to give anything. And the last big thing is Sunday School, which is the Sunday School Christmas Concert. Wait, no, that's not what we're calling it this year. The McGregor EMC Christmas Concert, December 5th. It is open for all people who want to share a special talent or skit or whatever may have you. Uh, And so if you are interested in sharing, talk to Lyndon Gunther. All right. Then beyond that, on the list of things to pray for, uh, the first one, as we noted, this coming week is Remembrance Day. Uh, make sure to observe it. It is a thing that in EMC churches, and Mennonite churches, we don't always quite know how to deal with. But at the same time, we all agree that if we forget what had happened, that increases the chance of it happening again. And so spend some time in prayer on Remembrance Day. Uh, Also, uh, Bilal and Fatima. As far as the move yesterday went, I am told that it went very well. There is going to be a list of things that are still needed in order to uh, get them completely good to go. That will be coming over the time to come. Sandra is sending that to Donna and we'll get it out uh, so we can get the last of the items. Also, Uh, It says pray for Russell's family on the list there. Uh, That would be my mother is having a terrible attack of sciatica, uh, which is leaving her mostly immobile, but also my grandmother broke her hip a couple weeks ago and uh, started getting a fever this week, and then they did some tests, and lo and behold, turns out she got COVID in the hospital. She is 101, and so please pray for her. If there was ever an 101-year-old that I think can make it through, it would be her, but she could definitely use the prayer all the same. And today, oh, also Paul Emmer, as you've probably heard, he has uh, gotten cancer, and it is getting progressively worse. And so definitely keep him in your prayers. God can do all miracles. But at the same time, this one is looking really bad. So please keep Paul Emmer in your prayers. And, as mentioned, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church as well. There are a number of places across the world where the church does not have the same freedom that we do to meet on Sunday mornings and out in the open, and it is meeting in such a way that people know who you are is more than likely to end you in a short life, if not even worse than that. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters who live under persecution. Uh, two countries that we're going to pray for particularly this morning is the first one is Afghanistan after the pullout that came earlier this year then there are reports left right and center of the church that was being built in Afghanistan and crumbling to the ground again and being persecuted in the worst ways so we want to keep Afghanistan in our prayers as well as Myanmar there is provinces of Christians particularly to the north In the Kachin province, I've mentioned before, I have some friends there, and they are constantly on the wrong side of the Buddhist majority uh, that rules the the country. And so we want to keep them in our prayers as well. And so let's go now into a time of prayer. Our God, we come before you this morning with a number of items on our heart. But first off, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters abroad. Lord, we want to pray for all of the places where our brothers and sisters are persecuted in your name. There are so many of them across the world, some that we hear about often and some that we don't even know to think about at all. But at the same time, through you, we are family. And so we put them before you this morning. Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Lord, we want to pray for calm. Lord, we want to pray for your protection. Lord, we want to pray that what they have come to know about you will keep them through this time. Lord, there is no words that I could say that relays just how terrifying what is going on there for them. And so we put it before you. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We pray, we pray peace will come. And we pray the same thing for Myanmar, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are in the Kachin province in particular. It has been year after year either of fighting or of tension, not knowing what will come next. And that gets everything in a terrible place and so God we pray bring them peace God we pray that they don't just drop off of the international radar because they are old news God we pray for justice where they cannot get it and Lord we pray that you will help us to bring them justice in whatever way it is that we need to Lord, there are many places across this world that are suffering in your name, and God, we put them all before you this morning. And God, connected to this, we also come to Remembrance Day. In our minds, when we think of Remembrance Day, what we think of is very particular wars that happened long ago, but at the same time, there are wars happening across the world at this very moment, injustices that are continuing to rage on. And so, this Remembrance Day, we pray that you open our eyes not just to what has been, but also to what is. Lord, in the remembrance of what came before, we pray that you will help us to act justly in ways that will bring the peace now, recognizing that. Only by acting now can we actually remember well what has come before. God, we put that before you. And Lord, as we come closer to our congregation this morning, we want to pray for Paul Emmer. Lord, it's disheartening news, the cancer that is progressing through him. God, we pray for healing for him. Lord, we know that while it doesn't look good, you are a God of miracles. You are a God who can do all things, and if there was ever somebody that is going to hold on to the very last fight to the very end, it is Paul in you. And so, God, we pray for healing to come. We pray that he will hold you as his rock, and his family will as well. Or this we put before you. And God, we want to pray for Bilal and Fatima as well, as they wait for the Final news that the tickets are on the way. Lord, we thank you for all of the people that helped move all of the stuff that we have here out there. And God, we pray that the last few items can get checked off the list pretty fast so they will move into a fully comfortable home. God, we thank you so very much that this is finally coming. And so we pray Please be with Bilal and Fatima and their family as well as us as we run those last couple miles to get them settled into their new home and then over the time to get them settled in for good. And God, I also want to bring before you my family. I want to pray a healing for my mother. It is so very hard to be immobile, especially for her especially when it is so nice right here before the snowfall comes. God, we pray for healing for her, and we pray that she'll be up and at her in time for Christmas. We put that before you. And God, I also want to bring my grandmother before you this morning as well. Please be the healing that she needs, and please be the rock for her that you have been all her life. God, all of these things we bring before you this morning, in your name we pray, amen. So, uh, we are going to continue on in our series this morning. We have, so far in three weeks, gone from the beginning of the Bible to about, oh, a third through it. Uh, we are up to the beginning of Kings this morning. And as we have been going through the Old Testament, we've been trying to answer uh, One question, who is Israel? And by answering that question, we have been learning an awful lot about how to read the Old Testament. Uh, So far in our travels up to King Solomon, we have learned that Israel are a people that are in a covenant relationship with God. They are a people who wrestle with God. They are a people of the law, that is, a people who know how to act as God's people, even if often they come up short. They are a people who are to be welcoming to others, bringing them into the fold, as we can see with how the story of Ruth and also Rahab went. They are a people who know to address sin in their lives before it gets out of control, something that we saw very clearly as we went through the book of Judges. And they are people who know that God is always reaching out to them to help them to do that, as we saw when each of the judges were sent when they called out to the Lord. This is who we have learned the Israelites to be so far from our quest through the Old Testament. And because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, because we believe he is the Son of God, we repent our sins and we follow as he leads. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, We Christians know that this is the family that we are a part of as well. To make it this far, we've only actually glanced at, by my count, 10 of the 39 books in the Old Testament, but by the end of today, uh, that number is more, more than double, which makes sense because it's pretty hard to run a monarchy without a lot of people that are good at writing stuff down. Almost... None of the books that we're going to talk about today are going to be in their final form by the end of today. That'll more come next week. Uh, But we're going to talk about 14 or so books that come during this period, or begin to come during this period. And so, where we ended last week, the son of the great King David, uh, Solomon... Known as the wisest of all kings, he asked the Lord for wisdom, and God granted it to him. He had just built a temple to the Lord, a grand temple, an act that is both to be read as very pious, a wonderful thing for him to do, but at the same time, we also have to recognize that it is a political move that he made as well. Strangely enough, there are times when those two things can overlap, rare as it might be. For, as we noted last week, in those days, it was believed that God was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, So, by building the temple and placing the Ark inside of it, it was believed that God was now in Jerusalem, right down the street from the palace itself, and just as much as this made it easy for Solomon to worship the Lord, he just had to go across the way, so too would it. Show everyone that the king in Jerusalem was close to God, somewhat literally. But it also did something else as well. For in the law of Moses, there are a lot of things laid out that observant people. Should do if they are worshiping God, like making sacrifices as well as properly celebrating the Passover, all of which before involved going to the tabernacle where the ark was and now required traveling to the temple in Jerusalem. And in doing so, you would end with all of the people of the kingdom seeing the capital city that was full of displays of the king's power every year when they came in for the Passover. But as you read about it in 1 Kings 5, the temple, it was absolutely grand. It was a multi-nation effort to put this temple up, as it should have been grand. This is the home of our God, after all. He deserves the best of the best. Uh, But it was also such a magnificent construction that we read Solomon conscripted many families in order to build it. That will be an ongoing theme as we go through Kings. But this was not the only thing that Solomon did. We also read that he had many wives, including from Egypt, marriages that strengthened the ties between kings and between kingdoms, but who also bring in worship of their own gods into Israel as well. That also happens quite frequently throughout the books of Kings. He also was known for his wisdom And it was during the monarchy that the importance of manuals for raising the next generation wisely really began to take root. Parts of the books of Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Job come into Hebrew rotation during the time of the monarchy, many of which actually credit Solomon to some extent, be they written by him or not. These books all borrow quite heavily from wisdom books from other nations, but they all show a truth that we can take to heart. And that is is that wisdom, while all people may have some amount of access to it, all wisdom ultimately comes from God. But sadly, over his life, uh, lived in peace and wealth, Solomon, we read, grew to turn away from the Lord. And instead, he looked with increasing interest on other gods, Asherah and Baal being the major ones that'll come up again and again as the books go by. Then he passed on, and Solomon's successor, unfortunately, was not wise as his father was. Solomon's son's name was Rehoboam, and he comes to the throne with labor issues to address as often as the case when new rulers come to sit in power. First Kings twelve, you read about it. He read that we read that the day uh, he came in, then people came before him and they were absolutely distraught, telling him that your father was wise, but under him we were worked to within an inch of our being. So please show yourself to be a great king and lighten our load. And that sounds reasonable, especially given that we know Solomon was quite into conscripting people to do work for him. So Rehoboam tells the people's representative, come back later, I will make a decision before then. And this so far looks good. He's really mauling over the case. That's that's what you would expect from a wise king to do. But then he turns to his advisors, who we are told are friends of his. And I suspect even in those days, friends of kings were not going to be the type of people that were particularly pro-labor, And they tell him, bring the hammer down. And so the new king does exactly that, telling them that not only would he not make it easier for them, he would actually make it significantly harder. To which the resultant rebellion ends with the ten tribes of Israel to the north, breaking away from the south, forming a kingdom named, confusedly, Israel while the old kingdom remaining in the south, made up of Judah and Benjamin and a spattering of Levites to take care of the temple, they would become known as the kingdom of Judah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, two kingdoms, two kings, but one people. We are not going to go over the lives of all of the kings this morning, or else we would be here for an awfully long time. For the kingdom of Israel from start to finish has 19 of them, and Judah from the schism to its fall has 20 of them. But there are some general trends that emerge as you go through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We will talk just about four of them. The first is that while from while they are the same people, Over time, the kingdoms and the people and how they live do drift rather dramatically from one another. One of the most obvious ways this is seen is in how the people of the two kingdoms come to worship God. As we saw before, with Solomon having built the temple in Jerusalem, it becomes expected that if you're going to worship God, then you do that by going to the temple in Jerusalem. Well that's a different country now. So the kings in Israel choose to set up their own holy place in their own capital called Samaria. And as the years go on, different traditions emerge as to how God should be rightfully worshipped by these two lineages. And this goes about as well as it does today when it comes to people seeing eye to eye as to how to worship God. A second trend through the monarchy is that the kings of Israel tend to be remembered as a whole lot more wicked than their southern counterparts, though over time both spiral right out of control. Israel is a much bigger kingdom than Judah and is suitably rather a lot more wealthy as well as a lot more powerful. Its location is the entrance to the Levant right in the north. And they are butting up right against a number of very rich empires being where they are. And this means that they are introduced to an awful lot of foreign gods. And as we proceed through the books of kings, it sure does seem like they want to follow every last one of them more than the Lord. Judah also has its fair share of wicked kings who worship other gods, but their ratio of good to bad is not nearly so unfortunate as their brothers to the north. Eventually, it even becomes one of the ways that Judah distinguishes themselves from Israel. We're not as bad as those ungodly northerners, is the sentiment that comes up quite a bit. And this is connected to a third trend, which is hand-in-hand, hand, that the more outrageous and unwicked and ungodly uh, the kings of the north get, the more instability they go through, especially uh, compared to the south. Uh, throughout its history, Judah has only one ruling family. That is the line of David. But throughout its history, Israel has nine separate dynasties. Although calling some of them dynasties is probably being a bit generous. They're like one king in power for three years. But nine separate This is likely connected to how, over the years, they never actually address that ask from the laborers all that well to lighten their load. In fact, it gets progressively worse. And the last of the major trends to mention about the monarchy is how, over time, the relationship between the kingdoms and God's prophets steadily degrades. The relationship between the kingdoms and God, as a result, it, it steadily degrades. Prophets in the Bible are often misunderstood by us today, mainly because I think when we say prophet and prophecy, we think primarily of fortune-telling, foretelling the future. That's the purpose of prophets and prophecy, I think, often when we use those terms. But that's not really what they are in the Bible. Instead, they are people that act as the mouthpiece of God as they foretell the future. It's... In so much as it's to get people back online, turn back to the Lord, or else this will happen to you. Uh, Think of Samuel as a good example of this. Uh, We talked about him a little bit last week. He relays God's opinion on what a king will bring back to the elders that ask him for one. But before the monarchy, prophets, they serve a pretty distinct role. They, They come to lead and to guide the people to follow the Lord. Think Moses, think Joshua, think a number of the judges. But after the monarchy begins that role, it really changes dramatically. During this period, during the monarchy, the prophets are less about leading the people and more just about railing on the kings, all in an attempt to get them to turn back to God. This begins with Samuel and how he talks to Saul quite harshly, as you read in 1 Samuel. And it continues on with Nathan and how he talks to David also quite harshly, but David does come back because of how Nathan rebukes him. But as time goes by, the kings generally don't turn back to God. They generally don't get better when the prophets come. In fact, they get markedly worse sometimes. They get more wicked and ungodly with each generation, it seems, to the point that during the reign of the Israelite king Ahab, beginning in 1 Kings 16, you get prophets like Elijah, a man from God who tells Ahab what will happen to him if he continues on as he has been. And as he has been, is worshiping the gods of his wife Jezebel, Baal and Asherah and seemingly completely neglecting the Lord. And in response, instead of turning back to the Lord, Elijah is instead hunted down like an animal. He is chased until he's left hiding on top of a mountain, broken to the point that he is suicidal, but still he proclaims what God tells him. And over the course of the monarchy, the relationship between the kingdoms and God's prophets, it just continues to degrade until the point that Micah, Amos, Jonah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, who all have books bearing their names, eventually begin to come with messages that are considerably more bleak than those of Elijah or Elisha or the others that we haven't mentioned. They all seem to begin to address not just the kings, but the kingdoms as well, who seem to have turned away from God. And they all seem to point out that these people are hurting those that are on the bottom of the pile, and they all are trying to remind the kings and the kingdoms that God hears his people. And judgment will come if you do not remember God's people. But the kingdoms don't listen to the prophets. They, they don't listen to the mouth of God. We talked about Assyria a little last week, and now they fully enter the story. They were a people to the north of Israel, who were an empire through and through. As in, they did what empires do when they come across uh, people without kings. They bring them into the empire forcibly. And uh, they, when they come across smaller kingdoms, they make vassals of them. Uh, They say to those little kingdoms, you pay us tribute and acknowledge that we are your superiors, and in exchange... Uh, We will, A, not destroy you right now, and B, we will help you out if you're ever in a tight spot, icing on the cake. This arrangement with the Assyrians is a problematic one, though, not just because of the money or the implied threat of what happens if you step out of line, but also because a part of acknowledging that superiority of the Assyrians is acknowledging that the Assyrians' gods are superior to yours as well. Israel and a number of the kingdoms beside her all become vassals, 2 Kings 15. Judah was left alone for the moment. They are too far to the south for Assyria to really care about. And later, an Israelite king, who we are told did wicked in the eyes of the Lord, decided that they had had enough of the vassal arrangement, not because they were exalting the other kings of Assyria, But instead, because there was already a rebellion that broke out amongst these little kingdoms, so they figured, why not join right in? And so, trying to well up their forces, Israel comes to Judah, and they ask them if they want to join the rebellion as well. And Judah says no, because they aren't a vassal to Assyria at this point, so why would they join a rebellion that would end them on the bad side of the biggest empire in the world at the time? To which, angered by the response, we read that Israel attacks Judah, brother against brother. And while Israel was small next to the might of Assyria, Judah was small next to the might of Israel. So she feared for her life. And sadly, all as we all do when we are afraid, Judah acted rather brashly, we read. She went to the only power that she knew who had an interest and was able to stand up against Israel, Assyria. And in short, Judah chose to acknowledge the gods of the Assyrians as superior to our Lord in order to win a war against her kin. Israel fell. Her people comprised of 10 of the tribes that we've spent so much time with so far are hauled off to the corners of the Assyrian Empire, and they are lost to this day. 2 Kings 17. Needless to say, neither the prophets nor our God, who they spoke for, are big fans of this choice that Judah made. Which is saying something, that we know that God and the prophets are not fans of this decision of Judah, because that Judah survives means that all of the written accounts we have from this period ultimately come from them. If you're writing so detrimentally of your own history, that says something. A couple generations later, a king named Hezekiah comes to the throne. Under, uh, and under him, Israel had joined a rebellion. A uh, rebellion. Oh, I said that wrong. A couple generations, a king named Hezekiah comes to the throne, and under him, just as Israel had joined a rebellion, so too now did Judah. There we go. And just as the first rebellion went ultimately very poorly, so too did this one. The Assyrians very quickly rolled up to the gates of Jerusalem, 2 Kings 18 to 20. But Hezekiah, we read, unlike his counterpart in Israel, Hezekiah is a king who followed God. And so the Lord, we read, sent a plague that decimated the Assyrian army. And they limped home, but they were ultimately too weak to defend their own borders. And so a different empire to the east from modern day Iraq, the land Abraham originally came from, an empire called Babylon swept right in and wiped the Assyrians off the map. And Judah, for the time, was saved. But we read, that Judah doesn't stay close to the Lord. Again, they turn away, and while there is one last good king in Judah named Josiah, ultimately he is the last of the Hebrew kings of the monarchy who listen to God. His offspring turn back to their wicked ways, worshiping other gods and grinding their subjects into the ground for their own benefit. Their arrogance causes them to go to war against Babylon, who quickly shows this tiny kingdom who the big dog is. Jerusalem is ransacked. The king is deposed. But his successor is left in place, with the message from Babylon being a strong, don't step out of line again or we will be back, to which Judah promptly steps out of line again. And here, Esau's descendants enter our story one last time. For Edom had been under the thumb of Judah since Saul beat them into submission years ago. They had struggled to free themselves from their cousin's grips many times, but it never fully succeeded. So seizing on this opportunity, they joined the Babylonians in their conquest. And before they know it, their cousins who had held them down for so very long were defeated. This time, the Babylonians all but raised Jerusalem to the ground, including the temple. The Ark of the Covenant has not been seen since. The ruling class who had caused so much pain to the people were carted off to Babylon in exile. That's our passage today. Those who were oppressed by the ruling class, they're left behind. And not much later, Edom meets its end as well. And just like that, the monarchy comes to an end. The conquest of the Babylonians was brutal and it was traumatic. The Book of Lamentations attests to that, as well as a number of the Psalms as well. On Remembrance Day, it's probably good to remember that there has never been a point where war has been anything other than a scourge. Three of the prophets we mentioned before, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. They write over this period of time. Or at least their books, they they cover the period from before the fall to the fall and then after as well. And of the many things they try to address, one of the questions that they try following is the one we have been for a while. Who is Israel? Isaiah, who will come up more next week, notes that the kingdom of Israel in the north had turned from God and were wicked to the point that they kind of deserved what came their way. He then says that while Judah was better, ultimately, the same thing goes for them as well. Both kingdoms had treated their people, God's people, as slaves and took to extracting every bit of well-being from them that they could get their hands on and In Judah's case, even saying that this was clear signs that God was blessing them, that they could take the well-being from those underneath them. To Isaiah, this is ultimately why Israel and Judah fell, because God is a God of justice who always protects his people. Jesus picks up on this pretty hard in passages like the Beatitudes. Who is Israel? They are a people that God's justice will never forget. Jeremiah has a similar takeaway. He didn't go into exile when the Babylonians came, but instead he was left behind. He, he witnessed that the people still there, they would actually go to Jerusalem, and on top of the site of the ruined temple, they, they would still sacrifice to God. Later, a group of the remaining would go to Egypt, where they figured it was safer, and they took Jeremiah along with them. And in time, he sees that they set up an altar to God in Egypt, and they worship him there as well. And Ezekiel is, in many ways, the most interesting of these three. He's struck mute by what happens, something that is an act of God we read, but acts of God can come in many ways. And it should be noted that if you witness the trauma of your wife getting killed by invaders, then being struck mute can very much so happen to you too. He was one of the people that went into exile, and in his book, Ezekiel sees God depart Jerusalem as a chariot. While during the reign of the kings, God was understood to be in his temple firmly planted, whether that's in Jerusalem or Samaria. Now, Now the people saw that God was mobile with his people, even as they go into exile. So who is Israel? Among many other things, Israel are the people in a covenant relationship with God. Israel are the people who wrestle with God. Israel are the people of the law who know how to act as God's people even when they don't. Israel are people who are called to bring outsiders into the fold. Israel are people who know what a scourge that sin can be and so know to turn to God before their sin gets fully out of hand. Israel are also people who know that God never stops reaching out to them. And from today, among many things, what we know is also this, that Israel are a people who know that God loves them and will seek justice for them, regardless of if they are on the absolute bottom of the pile of life. Think about how amazing that is we kind of think about it as second nature, that obviously God is for those on the bottom of the pile, but through almost all of human history, gods were friends with kings and no one else. Think about what that changes. There is no one near or above our Lord, so all will be held accountable for the injustices they inflict on others. This is not saying that God does not love those who are blessed in terms of money and power, but instead just they are not above his justice. And the importance of that cannot be understated. And we also know from today that Israel are a people whose God is mobile, who is with them wherever they may go. As Christians in a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, we are a part of the family of Israel as well. There is only one God of the Bible, and this is our God. And we are his people. To those around us who are at the absolute bottom of society, for the poor, for the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the righteous, the merciful, the pure-hearted, the peacemakers, the persecuted... For the people that Jesus tells us our Lord is for in the Beatitudes, let us act on their behalf as God commands us to as well. That is how we are to live as believers. Today is the day that we pray for the persecuted church. Across the world, there are other believers who are struck down, stepped on, and made to be nothing for their relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't forget them. When you give of your money, when you spend your time, when you vote, when you write your MPs, remember them. Even though we can't see them, they are there. Let us work to bring justice to our brothers and sisters, and let us hold those who oppress them, either consciously or not, accountable for their actions, no matter how high up the political or corporate food chain they may be, no matter how dangerous doing that might be. Our God is a God of justice who cares for his people. Let us live that truth. And as believers of Christ, let us also live in such a way that reflects that we know our God is with us wherever we may go. His Holy Spirit pointing the way to Christ, gifting us to build up his church, build up the coming kingdom of heaven. It is no small thing that God is with us always, and yet somehow it is something we always forget. Take heart and draw confidence in what you do for the kingdom, because this God is with you when you do it. As followers of Christ, as those who believe our Lord is the Son of God, who repent of our sins and who follow as he leads, we too are Israel. And so, let us act like it.
0: We opened our service singing praise to the Lord, the Almighty, uh, and we will close with that song as well. We, uh, we began f- singing verses uh, 1, 2, and 4, and we'll sing 1, 3, and 4. You'll see the lyrics uh, up here. If the singing's really going well, we may uh, sing a couple verses, the, the last two verses a cappella at the end, so do what you can. Sing out praise to the Lord the Almighty the king of creation all oh, my soul praise him for he is Thy health and salvation oh ye
3: For our benediction, we turn to the book of Ephesians. May God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grant peace, love, and faith to all the brothers and sisters. May grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in life imperishable. Go now and serve our God.